Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Um, and it's, a, uh, it's another sort of a, a memoir, but a group memoir, and it takes us back to the 1960s when an intrepid group of young and naive college students, myself included, uh, traced off to India to uh, save the subcontinent. And uh, it, was a, it was during the period of what we call the Wild West of overseas service, you know, when Peace Corps was still more of an idea than a really mature program. And they kind of came in, grabbed a bunch of us kids off college campuses, gave us some training, and then dropped us in the most remote and god-awful site you can imagine and said, go and do good things. So it's uh, <clears throat> a whole bunch of stories that are, uh, I think, uh, humorous for sure, and some of them are inspiring, and some of them are sad, and really the, the range of emotions, but it's how we all kind of survived. Um, you know, initially inspired by, by John Kennedy and, you know, asked not what your country you can do for you, but what you can do for your country, and... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went off with a great night of a day, but great, great, uh, you know, hopes. And uh, so it's, um, it's, it also captures a little bit of the mood of the 1960s, you know, which was kind of an, an era of great uh, hope as well as great craziness. And, and I think at least uh, some of us old farts kind of fondly remember those days, and uh, although it's probably good that they're behind us now. <laughs> Mm. So that's what it's about in, in, in general. So uh, this is Dan Perkins. Thank you for joining us today. Yes. Um, oh, my pleasure. Um, what's the time span that the book covers? How long were you together? Two years? We were, yeah, we were together uh, two years. It was actually a, a, an extended training period. It was a, it was a kind of a, uh, an experimental uh, program. So we were all, we were kind of picked up in our junior year. Of, of college and trained for one summer, went back, finished up our senior year, and trained some more and trained some more in India. So there was a lot of training. Unfortunately, for my group, particular group, um, we were trained first in poultry and then halfway through switched to agriculture. So you know it wasn't you know I didn't quite have it together. But I would I will say one thing. I mean, you know, we started off on day, I mean, there was a lot of attrition. We started off on day one with probably 100 kids in two programs. One that was going to be in public health in Maharashtra, another one in, in uh, Rajasthan in community development of some sort. We probably ended up at 26 after two years uh, wow. uh, in India. So, uh, but the ones who, who made it through, or most of the way through, I, I would say really did a lot in their subsequent lives. And you can't tell whether or not there was a lot of self-selection going on that kind of the best and brightest were, were, were picked or if there was something about the experience itself that um, helped shape the subsequent trajectory of people's lives. But uh, it's a group that I was really proud to be you know, associated with just 
given what they accomplished, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, throughout their lives, the kind of dedication and service that they they kind of they still evidenced. Uh, so you, even you, in their you started out with a hundred and wound up with twenty-two. Is that what you said? Yeah, about twenty-six. I think. Right. So you had about. You had a seventy-five percent attrition rate in, two, in over the two-year period. What was, yeah, what, 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 a lot of it in change. Go ahead. I'm just curious: is was there any one common thread as to why people left? Many were deselected. They were asked to go home. Um, I think. I think, given how young people were, uh, you know. They went back to their senior year in colleges. Some of them fell in love, you know, that kind of stuff. And they said, "Well, I, you know, I can't, I, you know, I can't leave my, you know, my the love of my life." So there was probably mm-hmm. you know, involvement. Um, but frankly, when we got there, it it was tough. I mean, India was a tough assignment. It was very. Uh, I mean, the cultural shock. No matter how much they prepare you. You can't be prepared for being dumped in a, in a, in a village. You know, you plucked off a, a, a university campus and dumped in a remote village somewhere. But the big problem was, uh, you know, we were really not – they couldn't train us well enough. Uh, so we felt comfortable doing what we were doing. I mean, a lot of the gals were doing um, public health. There were a couple of nurses – but most of them were not. They were just, you know, liberal arts graduates. And so they felt, what am I contributing? Now, they could contribute in a lot of ways. And, and we guys who were in agriculture had the same feeling. None of us were farmers. Some of us grew up in the farm. Uh, so, that, you know, we were supposed to be pushing these hybrid seeds. And we could do that kind of out of a book, but you never felt really secure and there's a lot at stake. You know, if you work with a farmer, a poor farmer, subsistence farmer, and you screwed it up, you know, it wasn't like you could go down the road and get, you know, farm assistance. You know, I mean, his family was in dire, in dire shape. So there was a, there were also lots of pressures uh, on you uh, to make, you know, good decisions. So it was, it was not easy. It was hot. You were lonely. It was, you know, you had no cell phones. There's no internet. Yeah, and uh, it uh, it wore it wore people it wore people down. But it made you hard. I mean, it made you. It, it really tested you so that you knew what you were uh, in terms of your character and your strengths and so forth. How many men versus women? Uh, in the in the up in Rajasthan, uh, where uh, the, the agricultural group was, there was all men. In the public health program down in Maharashtra, I think there were two or three guys, but all the rest were women, females. So it was, um, yeah, you know, sort of gender roles were in play as, uh, uh, back then. Any, and, any, uh, I could say any relationships bloom between members of the teams and members of the, and the local communities? Nothing with the local community. That was that would have been uh, explosive. Um, I mean, this was you know, in other countries you could, but India was very difficult in that respect. Um, the sexual taboos, the relationship taboos were, were very, very strong. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple of romances, not as many as you might think, though, uh, 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 within um, the team. I mean, there was one couple I can remember got married, and uh, another one, his another fellow in our, in our group, his college um, sweetheart managed to get into Peace Corps to India. They got married. He extended for a third year so she could complete for two years. Uh, that was kind of an exceptional case. They didn't really, they certainly did not, uh, uh, you know, encourage those kind, you know, these, these kinds of uh, relationships necessarily. Yeah. So, uh, but it, you know, it, it, let, me, let me put it this way: for young males, it was a trying time. This <laughs> <laughs> is not where you want to be. <laughs> okay. So, how long you were there for? Two years. Yes. Did you ever go back? Never been back. Some, some have. Um, not sure why. Uh, I, I, I. Anyway, the ones who have gone back, I think, have found this to be an obviously an interesting experience. I mean, the, the country has changed a lot. <clears throat> and I remember when we went. It was we went there. I mean, to give you a little bit of the background, I suppose. <clears throat> Uh, India was having a, a drought at the time, and it, and it was an agricultural crisis. They were importing grain, you know, and this was so that was one of the reasons that President Johnson said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you all these agricultural experts. But there weren't a lot of agricultural experts hanging around in Washington. <laughs> so they, they turned to Peace Corps, who, who, uh, who found us, you know, uh, liberal arts graduates and, uh, you know, and sent us over. Uh, but it was a uh, – but from then, when they were really experiencing a lot of economic and financial difficulty, a drought, I mean, you can see <clears throat> uh, women working for, like, a few rupees a day, just, like, breaking rocks by the side of a road for to, – to, to put as the base for road development. And they were doing everything by hand. Because labor was super cheap and you know machines were, were expensive. Uh, now you go over there. I mean, I can see from Google Earth where where I lived. There was nothing but you know the town was a mile away. There was nothing. I looked out. There was nothing but desert. And now it's you know now and that from Google Earth I can see that it's like a, a suburb there. What had been desert is now. Uh, green with agriculture and obviously irrigation and so on and so forth. And obviously the country has sort of made great developments in developing an educated, you know, class and uh, uh, moving up in the uh, economically. It still has a lot of political problems and it has uh, obviously a lot of poverty, but it's certainly very different than it was uh, when I was there so many years ago. I, I, I have this question that I've been looking for somebody who's spent any time in India uh, that I've always wanted to ask. And so I know it's been a long time since you were there, but I'm going to ask you anyway the question. Um, one of the tenets of, of Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders is uh, the Green New Deal. And one of the largest contributors of CO2 to the atmosphere are cattle. And 
they want to get rid of cattle in the United States to eliminate the flatulent gas. But in India, at least it used to be, on whether it's still true, that cows were sacred. How would the Indian people react to the idea that they have to get rid of their cows to save the earth? Good. That's a good question. Um, the, uh, I, mean, uh, I, I think that the attitudes have changed a lot. And I, you know, uh, I, I think if you went out into, into the rural areas where there was still poverty and, and they, they hold on to the old traditions, you would face riot. I mean, there would be riots. I mean, uh, it, and they, and then, in fact, uh, the political leadership of the country still plays on the tribalism, uh, the current leadership. They were a little bit sort of like, uh, I'll say Trumpian in a way. Um, and they, and they, uh, they, they play on nativist, uh, anxieties and fears, you know, against the Muslims and, and so forth. But that's a very traditional, so those people are very traditional, and they still represent a, a large part of the country and, and probably would not like it at all. Then, of course, there's this, this huge growing middle class that is educated and so forth, and I think that they are not tied to those old traditions as much. So it's a, a country in, in transition, but I don't think it's transitioned that far. I think that would be still problematic to sort of, just and the sacrifice of the cow for some, some ulterior, you know, uh, motive. When when you look at India and its neighbor China, you look at the the fastest growing coal fired power generation facilities in the world. China is literally opening up a coal power plant every week somewhere in China, and the China and India are the largest polluters of CO2 because of the coal they use to generate electrical power. Um, and yet the uh, the Paris Accord gave them till 2035 to begin to do something about the CO2 emissions. Uh, is it as a big a problem in India uh, that we're led to believe it is here in the United States? Well, I'm not an expert on, on India. Let me but let me uh, you know, I said I was there, you know, a long time ago. I, I think that at the same time as China is opening up these coal-fired plants, they're also investing a lot in uh, other energy forms, and I think that they're actually going to beat us in terms of the technology that, uh, for renewable energy sources. Yeah. Uh, but they're growing so fast, and they've grown so fast, I think that they have to throw everything at the energy issue. Um, you know, I, I, I can still remember watching a, a golf tournament a few years, not that long ago. And the commentators, I, I, it was someplace called Cheng Cheng, China. I can't, maybe that was the name of a golfer, but it was some place I had never heard of. And they, uh, said this was in late 1970s or 1980s. This was a fishing village of 12,000 people. And now it's a bustling metropolis of 13 million. Mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine that growth and that, you know, the government decided this is going to be a new urban, industrial, or financial, whatever it is they decided it was going to be. And when they say something's going to happen, it happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, 
that, you know, for all the, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a regime that I would want to live under because of its totalitarian nature, but they do get things done. And the, it's the same with the coronavirus. You know, that's where it started. They screwed up in the first couple, a few weeks because they did not admit that it was airborne, contagion, the contagion was airborne. Mm-hmm. And they allowed it to spread. But once they said, well, we can't contain it, we're going to get serious about it, then they really got serious about it. And so they had this spurt of, you know, they had the most cases in the world and to start off with, and they just stopped it, you know, uh, almost in its tracks. Sometimes by carting people off, screaming in, uh, to quarantine centers, but, you know, they, they put all the technological resources necessary, to, you know, to do it. So I, you know, in some ways, you know, I, I mean, China may surprise us in turning the corner on on some of these tech, these challenges Once, if they decide to do it. Uh, India, I think, is going to be a, a more of a problem because it's so unwieldy. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pluralistic democracy with all these castes and tribes and 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 uh, religions and languages and so on and so forth, and so to move that mass of people in any one direction, uh, particularly a, 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 a direction that is based upon the greater good, for example, when I save the earth, uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult. It's going to be a lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's still a lot of corruption, and, and it was always endemic. I mean, uh, you know, bakshish was the the term that was that we used or was used when we were there, and it was almost universal. Uh, and I think that that still plagued the government an awful lot. Yes. So, and how much how much time do you have left? We've again? we've got about uh, five ten minutes here with uh, with okay. Tom before we got to let him Could- go. Could I could I go a different direction with our guests? Yeah, sure. go ahead, go ahead. I want to I want I want to talk about as as a a writer myself, written uh, four novels. I say I've written, uh, just finished my first historical fiction, and I've written some children's books. And I'm curious about your writing process. How how did you tackle sure. this? How did you tackle this project? Well, this, this, this project, uh, was a little different because I had to use the stories of a lot of colleagues who were with me in India. And so I, you know, so, and I had to take their, I, I try to keep their voice, but, you know, and, and, and smooth it out into something that seems seamless. So there was an artificial sort of setting and that allowed for the stories to be told. Uh, but I used, uh, you know, I was using material that I was showing from other people. I've also written other memoirs. I've written, uh, uh, you know, about going up in the post-World War II period, about my professional career, because I'm retired now, but I did social policy for, for several decades and was there from the war on poverty to the war on the, on the poor. And I t- t- tell that story from a first-person perspective. And I've written fiction. So I'm, and now I'm back to, the third of a volume of a trilogy. What I find, you know, is that I probably always had this sort of, I don't know, gift or something where when I get to a point, I'm writing, you know, this, a fictional piece now, and I get up and say, geez, where am I going to go next? 
I just have this, uh, uh, I, I just have a way of letting my mind relax, not forcing it. And things just sort of pop in. And then I'll, I'll grab that little dream of a thought or a little bit of narrative and then I'll run with it. I'll either like it or not like it and, and then may, may direct it. But, uh, I never get stuck. You know, when a lot of people talk about writer's block, it's, you know, it's like my, my, I can't type fast enough sometimes <laughs> to, to keep up with what, what's, what's in my head. So I think I'm good at some things. I think I'm good at, at dialogue, at character development, at, at kind of, you know, uh, uh, making sure that I, I deal with pace, substance, humor, you know, uh, uh, a compelling I, I, I You have to keep all those together, and you have mm-hmm. to you know, go from one to the other so that it, it, it blends in. It's like doing a symphony, if you will. Yeah. You know, for all the parts of the writing, I'm not as good at, like, I think describing scenes and so forth. I think that, that I need, I, I could uh, do a better job. I, I wrote a, a, a trilogy uh, a fictional, uh, on a radical Islamic terrorism group using the nuclear weapons to attack the United States. And I, I wrote those three books, the trilogy. I wrote it in third person. And when I finished the, the fourth book and it was published, a third book, it was published, uh, about six months later, I started getting emails and notes from people. So when is the next book coming out? And I would say to them, you understand a trilogy is three, and they would come back and say, so when's the next book coming out? So I wrote a, I, I don't know what you call it, I call it a sequel to a trilogy. So I wrote a sequel to a trilogy, and I wrote the book, and uh, I, I when I, you were describing what happens with you, it's very much what I have, is I've got I've got more content than I can get it on the on the computer. But um, in the fourth book, um, my editor said, do you realize that in the middle of this book, for some reason, you changed from third person to first person? I said, no. didn't even didn't notice it. He says, I know you're going to hate this, but you got to go back and write the first half in first person. It's it's a wonderful uh, style for you. Do you did I hear you say you write stuff in first person too? Well, uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm more in third person. I I, I think, but I. But I, I'll tell you because I, I well I switch around from character to character, and so I, I they're all talking in their own voice. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, I do get very much uh, involved with the uh, <laughs> with the characters. And right now, so I'm in the I'm in this was supposed to be the, the trilogy. I was joking with some neighbors the other day, saying, "Well, uh, some who have read my stuff may say when is it coming out." Well, maybe I'm not going to end with three. Maybe it'll be a quartet. But we're trying to look for the right word for a four-book series. And uh, uh, but yeah, you get it. I don't know. You may probably have the same the same feeling. You, you become invested in the characters. I'm killing some off in in, in this. And in, in this book, and it's hard. I mean, it's like I'm losing a friend. Um, oh, I know. It's. it's I, I I remember the the letters and notes that I would get from people. These we know these people. They're part of our family. You got to tell yeah. us what happens because they're all young people. And uh, so I, I I finished that book, and I moved to my first venture into historical fiction, which uh, 
took me over four and a half years to write. It's wow. uh, it's an epic. It's called Abraham Lincoln and the Second Assassin. And it's a whole new twist on why uh, why the assassination needed to take place or why some people thought it needed to take place and a whole new character besides John Wilkes Booth, but they're they're on parallel tracks and don't know it. In fact, they even run into each other. Uh, so it took about four and a half years to, to write wow. that because I was also, I do a lot of commentary as Jim knows in radio and television. And I finished that book um, about a month ago on a Saturday and I took Sunday off and I had this idea for a book, a story. Uh, I had the title um, and I had the genre. So I, in the, my first throw in romance and it's a story about um, a young woman who lives in Waterloo, Iowa in 1929 and she decides she wants to become a nurse. So she figures out that she can go to Chicago to the St. James Hospital and go into the School of Nursing and she gets accepted and she goes, leaves Waterloo, Iowa and um, in writing romance uh, what I've been told, you have to have a strong heroine, she has to have a lot of challenges, and you have to have a happy ending. And so, in a month's time, I've written 25 chapters in this new book. And uh, I, I'm fortunate enough that my brother is the head of the School of Nursing uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and has run three different nursing schools uh, across the country. So um, Georgetown graduate in, in bioethics and you know, Catholic University of America and on and on and on. He's got all kinds of degrees in nursing. But it's, it's, it's interesting to, to, to write. I mean, when I, when I wrote the trilogy and I wrote the fourth book, I'm reading, I'm writing about a group of people. When I'm writing this, this book called Sad Eyes, I'm writing as it's her. So I'm writing from a women's perspective. And my wife and my younger sister are my principal readers, and they're both enjoying the book and are amazed that I could write like a woman. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say one thing. I, I uh, one time the, the the head of the School of Social Work at the University of Wisconsin. I was a, I was on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin, and, I, and my area was social policy. So I have a, a lot of subtext about political realities and uh, and what's going on in the country and so on and so forth. Uh, but the head of the school social worker, a woman, uh, you know, one day said to me, you write, your female characters are so authentic. Most men could not do it. I, I think that is one of the high compliments that I sure. Uh, I don't think it's, it's easy for a guy to do that. So, I, I agree with you. But, <laughs> But once you get into it it, it, it it works just like any other character. Yeah, exactly. I think. So what and are you working on? What are you working on now? Well, it's it's the th third book of, of the trilogy, uh, well, or quartet, whatever it's going to end up to be. But I'm up to current times now. I started the first. It started with an image, and the image was of Malala. Yes, I can't pronounce the name. Miss Fusi. 
uh, you know, that was the Pakistani girl who was shot in the head because she advocated for female education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, uh, she made, they took her to England. They saved her life. She just graduated from Oxford. She won the Nobel, youngest winner of the Nobel Peace, uh, Peace Prize. And I just had the image of, of that, of an Afghani girl who was going to make, uh, uh, not Pakistani, but Afghani, in the area of the Taliban, who was going to make it out and make a success. And so that was one family. Then they had an American family that was wealthy, but the father was an autocrat and totalitarian and so on and so forth. And I, and I just started uh, working those two families. They intersect and get involved uh, with one another. But it, it's now, I'm going to say, it goes from the, around, the era, around the era of the Taliban in 9-11, uh, mm-hmm. and there was an escape of that family and that girl, those girl, that girl and her sister up to the present time. Uh, but now I'm approaching the 2020 election, and it seems like a good stopping point where everything is coming to a head mm-hmm. in terms of, and the future of our country and small matters like that. But social policy has always been what I've, that's what I can talk about with some authenticity and expertise. And so uh, that's that's one of the subtexts that runs through my fictional works. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to talk to another author. Yes. I am, yeah, I am glad we were able to make this work today. Before we let everybody go, uh, I want to start with Tom. How do we find you on the web, get your uh, books, everything else there, Tom Corbett? Okay, well, uh, the website is www.booksbytomcorbett.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.